Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay and Ellie, and our live listeners report the best part about it is hearing me in pain. I'm Lorelai Weissel, and actually I think the best part about recording this podcast in general is hearing Jay in pain. <laughs> I'm Brian Dawes, and I don't know what the best part about listening to this podcast live is, but it certainly isn't me. Hey... You're great, Brian. I would have fired you in a heartbeat if I didn't think you were great. (laughs) Don't think I'm being nice. Noted. (laughs) All right, so this week we have a couple exciting bits of news. Yeah, we do. (laughs) We got some previews and the reveal for Modern Horizons. And the new Pokemon game. Oh, wait. (sighs) That too. Sword and Shield. We will have plenty of Sobble to talk about during Final Thoughts, Brian. The innovation product from this year, that is the product like Conspiracy or Battle Bond, is this Modern Horizons product. Just real quick, because we're not a Mel cast, we're a Vorthos cast. Modern Horizons is a set that skips over Standard and puts cards directly into Modern. I assume it also puts them into Legacy formats as well legacy vintage and commander all get these cards too because they get everything that gets printed but this for competitive play skips right over standard and into modern so they can print stuff that say most standard sets have to be contiguous with what's going on in the story there has to be continuity because people get confused when you jump back in time or jump around a lot this set however can do whatever the heck it wants in that regard and also can bring a lot of really cool flavor. And we are lucky enough to have someone who worked on the creative text for it. Lucky. Modern Horizons is the first set I got to write for. I was part of the creative text team working under Allison Lores. I am super excited because finally I can talk about something that was under my NDA. Modern Horizons finally announced I'm hyped. Y'all didn't even know how cool this set is. It blew my mind when I first read about it and was first working on it. If you like magic, there is something in this set for you. I can't even put into words, not because I'm under NDA for things, but because it's just really that awesome how cool this set is going to be. I'm going to be very excited. We got two cards with the announcement today. The official previews will begin at the end of May. And the set will release in the middle of June. But for now, guess we should talk about some cards? So we got two cards revealed. Sarah the Benevolent, the long-awaited Sarah card, and Cabal Therapist. I needed to eat my hat last year because I was so sure we were going to get Sarah by Commander 18. And I was so very wrong. It was so hard to watch you go through that. And not be able to tell you that she would be coming soon. It's fine. I went under NDA myself around the time that set came out, so I couldn't speculate anymore anyway. It's been fun watching things go here and there. Because, like, this set was teased in... There was a survey that went around a couple months ago where Watsi was just kind of probing and asking, like, hey, how would you think about a set that prints cards directly into modern? And people were like, hey, I wonder if that's going to be a thing. And I'm like, haha, it totally is. (laughs) official channels have been hyping this set for about a month now like hey modern players pay attention to an announcement at the end of february and i'm like oh my god it's finally gonna happen 
Yeah, a Sarah card, finally. If you don't know who Sarah is, welcome to the Vorthos cast. <laughs> we talked a whole bunch about Sarah and the Church of Sarah in episodes before Dominaria came out last year. So very early on. It was episode four. Episode four. So 51 episodes ago, wow. we talked about her in the Dominaria pre-show. Definitely, if, if you need background on who Sarah is, go listen to episode four of this show, because we dish on everything. I also wrote a huge article on Cool Stuff, Inc. called The Song of Sarah, if you want to check that out, which goes into her full history, everything we knew about her before Dominaria. Uh, Jay, it's called The Song of All. Yeah, I know it was a play on those words. I know. It's great. I appreciated it. <laughs> Magali killed this art. Oh, my God. Oh, it's so beautiful. Yes. Okay. So this version of Sarah is a bit of a reinterpretation of what we've seen before. We have seen Sarah on things like Worship, on her Vanguard card, and on a few others. But this artwork, oh my god, it's so perfect. So first of all, we're in Sarah's realm. If you look in the top left corner, you can see the bottom of Sarah's sanctum if you're looking at the full art. So we know we're in Sarah's realm here. Sarah is not alive again, by the way. This takes place in the past. It is very clearly referencing her worship artwork the closest, because she doesn't have that hood she has in some of the other art. But the big takeaways from that are the flowing fabrics, the white and gold color motif, the kind of winged left shoulder she has going on, which is a very cool reference. Now it's sort of a metal pauldron, but it was more fabric-y in some of the earlier art. It looks much cooler now. And she has this armor on that happens to be her quartered circle symbol. And what's really cool about it is it's not actually a quartered circle. Her breastplate, it's divided into the four colors in the checkered artwork. And then there's a circlet tied around her that just happens to be centered over the checkers, making it the quartered circle symbol that we've seen and talked about so much for the last year, which is so cool. The flowing fabrics are gorgeous. Like everything... I'm sure I'm going to be finding some things in this, like, I suspect the rest of her armor has some influences, especially on her hip and her greaves. If you look around her chest plate, there are feathers in there. That's a small little detail that shows up in her Urza block art as well. That looks more spike-like on the old art, but Magali reimagined those as feathers, which is really neat because angels. It's just very cool. Her artwork is already phenomenal. Magali is one of those artists that if we see her art before we see the card it's associated with, we think it's a legendary creature because what else could it be? Honestly, right? I can't wait to see the angel tokens that go with this. And I just love the otherworldly breeze that is sending her clothing in all directions like the goddess she is. And I mean that literally, not just that she's a beautiful woman but that she's like literally a goddess in this realm well she was named after the goddess sarah no don't you start that oh god please stop <laughs> it's the dumbest piece of i get I, I guess vanguard is canon but like it's so dumb poorly worded flavor text is what it is because it was not intended to say 
that there's another goddess named Sarah. We talk about that, too, in an earlier episode, and you can listen to that. It's so dumb. I hate it so much, (laughs) which is why I make fun of it. The other artwork we got is for Cabal Therapist, which is also super cool. The card is really good. Again, we're not really a Melvin cast. Well, okay, but... Talk about it. We can talk about how it's a reference to Cabal Therapy. Yeah, like, so the card mechanically does the Cabal Therapy thing, and the creature in the art of Cabal Therapy is this creature. Like, Cabal Therapy is the act that this creature does. Now we are getting the creature that lets you just do the thing. It's really time spirally. Even though it's like a mechanical thing, the art link and the sense of magic history brings it into Vorthos territory too. This was a card where we knew that this had to be this card's name. There just isn't anything else to name this card. You're not wrong. It has one name and this is it. It's like an, the way the Elder Dragons are born knowing their name. This card was made knowing its <laughs> name. What else is cool about the Cabal Therapist art is it has the nightmare creature from the original Cabal Therapy artwork, but has the updated aesthetics from like Chainer's Torment. So it has this kind of stonework look that is depicting this creature being ripped out of dementia space. So for those of you who don't know how the Cabal created these creatures, their version of dementia magic would be essentially connecting to this nightmare realm where these nightmares that they envision could be created and then pulling them out of dementia space. So I think it's a very cool look for this card. Hey, remember that time the Cabal tried to reach into nightmare space? And then accidentally reached into the abyss and pulled out Belzenlock. Remember that? Yep. Yep. That was pretty wild. That is the end of our news for today. Let's move on to some listener questions. Wait, wait. You don't want to mention that other art? Oh, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. So there's a third piece of artwork that was put up in the background along with the Sarah art. It's a very weird looking thing. At first glance, it kind of looks like an Eldrazi because it's got like forearms and a dude sticking out of it. But if you look more closely, it appears to be made of like intertwining branches and the top of it is all leaves and stuff. But it's also red with this internal power or energy. And we just don't have very much of an idea what it is. It might be a reprint of something that was printed. Remember this set, if you're doing speculation, this set is all either new cards or cards that did not exist in modern up until now. So it wouldn't be anything that's already in modern. So sorry, Eldrazi fans, but unless it's a new Eldrazi, which I feel like the Eldrazi is a lot of creative space to add to a set like this, it's probably not that. It looks kind of like a dryad with the person coming out of the tree like this, but there aren't really any legendary dryads that we haven't seen. The closest thing I could think of would be like Matt Selesnia or something, but that would be very cool if it was a, a Perun card or something along those lines, but we'll have to see. You will have to see because I'm not telling you. Brian, what are your thoughts on it? Like, the coloration really does make me think more of Eldrazi than Elemental, but... It does look evil. It's got that... Yeah. 
like there's not enough green in it for me to like there is some green in it maybe it's just a camera distortion or something like that but it just looks more black grayish than green to me so it could easily be some kind of black green elemental or something like that maybe skullbriar or something i don't know but it's i'm not really sure what to make of that art it's super weird i haven't the foggiest if it weren't for the leaves up top, I would feel comfortable going like Phyrexian or Eldrazi. Like, it's got a lot of conflicting elements. It looks like an evil green creature, almost, which is weird. And, like, the coloration of the person in the front's hair and the red glow on the front of his chest almost made me think of Soren for a minute, but I was like, that doesn't make any sense either, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not that. I would be very disappointed if it was Soren because... Hey, if you didn't know, there's a Chrome extension that's out there that at the end of every magic story, it gives you a reminder that, meanwhile, on Innistrad, Soren is still stuck in a rock. And it's wonderful. It makes my day. And I was very happy to find this, this extension. So I want him to stay there. And I hope people are throwing random vegetables or fruits at his head while he's stuck in that rock. I think we will have a lot more to say about this in May when it actually comes out and i'm very excited to talk to lorelei about the background behind the names and flavor text that eventually come out for this yep everything you want me to say about this set i have said everything else has to remain a secret until we get more previews but i very much enjoy listening to you two try and figure out what the hell that art is because i know and we will see. You and your NDAs. It's going to be something dumb, I bet. I'm going to spend some time on Scryfall with everything that isn't in modern. Let me tell you that much. Let's move on to listener questions. Our first question of the week comes from Complete Indie on Twitter. The question is, what is the best way to figure out the full in-depth story of The Secretist if you have no money and thus can't read The Secretist itself? So there are a couple things going on here. First of all, The Secretist is... Three novellas put together, each of them are $2. So if you can't scrounge up the $6 total for all of that, there are a few other options available to you coming from us. I'm sure there are other people who've summarized the story. I did a very detailed breakdown of the story in an article for MTG Salvation, where I used to write the Archive Trap story summary series. So if you look up Ravnica, the Living Guild Pact on MTGS's articles, that has a very detailed summary of the story. We also talked about a detailed summary of the story in our 33rd podcast titled An Abridged History of Postmending Ravnica. Wow, is that 20 episodes already now? Yup. Yeesh. We've been around for a while. It's almost like next week's our anniversary episode. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's usually weird to not promote your own work, but if you want a better summary of The Secretist, definitely read Jay's article over our podcast episode. We don't go into a whole lot of detail. Really, the big takeaway is that Jace becomes the Living Guild Pact. There isn't a whole lot in it that is super relevant for Ravnica right now. But if you do want to know more and more specifics about it, Jay's article does go in more depth. Yeah, it is not quite like, say, Theros, where there's a lot more story. 
Even though Theros is only two novellas, I want to say there's a lot more story in Theros than there is in The Secretist. We haven't been back to Theros, but I assume there's going to be more that's relevant going forward. Because so much of recent story has focused on Ravnica, if you've read things like Project Lightning Bug Forward, you probably know pretty much everything you would need to know from The Secretist. Our next question comes from at Broboticus on Twitter. Broboticus, that's such a great Twitter name, says, Hello! At Cube April said I should ask you my lore questions. So, the trials on Amonkhet are there in post-Bolas world for the purpose of providing skilled warriors into Eternals. My question is, did they exist before Bolas? And if so, in what capacity? The answer is yes, they existed before Bolas. The first Hour of Devastation story, Bolas mentions offhand that he's discovered this ritual that they had to celebrate the gods and twisted it into this murderous thing. I think there was still a sacrifice? I don't remember offhand, but it wasn't like everyone but one person died. Well, even that one person still died. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It wasn't like everyone died. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> You're right. Our last question of the week is from Berg DG on Tumblr. And this one is going to be basically for Brian. Asking here because of NDA of two of you, could the Vidugazi issues seen with the artifact in today's story, today's story referencing actually the Orzhov story, be linked to the discordant nature of Tristani? And I would say that is a thought that hadn't occurred to me when I first read the story, but it makes a ton of sense. Um, and I would not be surprised if that was a contributing factor. Considering the fact that we don't know a whole lot about what's actually going on with the main characters of the story, we can assume that Jace's relationship with Amara and her high rank in the Selesnya Guild kind of lends itself to the fact that she is an important character because of that relationship and possibly has... It'll probably be explained more in the story when we actually get the novel. But in the meantime, I think that's as good as an idea as anything else that we have because we just don't know a whole lot because we don't have much of the story right now outside of Nikki Drayden's wonderful work. And that's all any of us can say. <laughs> Ashley, where are you? Yes, unfortunately, schoolwork took priority for Ashley, so she is not with us tonight. So Brian is the only person who can speculate on this one this week. It's not unfortunate. School is important. It's more important than the podcast. That's true. Ashley is making good adult decisions. Boo adult decisions. Let's talk about this week's story, The Ascension of Reza. Reza is an Azorius law mage. His full name is Reza Jalus Agnaeus, I think is how it's supposed to be pronounced. I have no idea. I don't know why I always take the first stab at these pronunciations. <laughs> because it's funnier. Exactly. <laughs> Reza is being mentored by Tagan the Sphinx. We should also note that Reza is a Vidalcan. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. That matters later. Reza is heading towards the law library because he is trying to figure out his next project after he had just closed a loophole. So the description of this law that he created is great, and I need to read it to you. The loophole I'd closed was a major one, 
and the new law I drafted consisted of three pages of the most judiciously convoluted legalese, including 15 double negatives, 12 triple negatives, seven footnotes, and 28 qualifications, all fitting into a single perfect sentence. <laughs> I died when I saw that. Because, like, that was how I wrote in middle school, and I always got yelled at. Oh my god, and they didn't fix you either. No, they didn't. I'm still the worst. It's a pretty cute scene. Tagan comes up and tells him he's been noticed by Dovin Bun, who liked the law. There's a very cute scene where the Sphinx has cat-like properties. There's a law rune of the new law, and it gets pawed off the table, which is just like the cutest thing. And there's also like the original draft of the Guild Pact has some of Azor's mane in it, which is hilarious by itself, because if you've ever had a cat, you know that hair gets everywhere. There are also two great new curses slash exclamations for the Azorius here that I need to read. By Azor's immaculate mane! Oh, thank Azor's infinite foresight. Which are not ones we've seen before? The really, the only... Ravnican exclusive curse we've seen up to this point is Crocked, which is the goblin god of misfortune. I love bringing up Crocked whenever. So it's nice to add some Azor curses to the repertoire here. This is the kind of thing you'll see with like Urza from Dominarian characters. We actually first learned that Liliana was from Dominaria because she curses Urza's name in Agents of Artifice. Tagan is talking to Reza about his next project, and Reza needs to go to the Laura Archive, but his ride is shot down over the Think Tank. Now, the Think Tank was originally founded by these rogue Izzet chemisters, and it's just kind of like a Wild West inventor's paradise built on a bunch of trash in a river <laughs> that the only reason they can stay there is because, like, five different guilds claim ownership of it, or claim rights to it, and it hasn't been settled who actually has rights to it yet. So in the think tank, Reza meets an inventor named Henrik, who has like a dozen different nicknames that he uses that I forget. Henrik tells her that a crazy inventor has been shooting down thopters, and so Henrik in introduces him to another character named Janin, he ends up waiting with Janin. Janin is a human who is raised by Vidalkin. So he knows all about these rituals and has this bath ready and some other cool stuff for them. And it's like, oh, like you've actually learned about, you know, Vidalkin culture. And it really makes Reza feel at home there and connected to this, this riffraffy place that he otherwise wouldn't have been. But then it starts to get dark and they go to look for Henrik and they can't find him anywhere. And they discover a crowd forming around a woman who claims she's able to conjure riffs from tainted electrical magic. Fatbergs! Which is finally our connection to the Fatberg story. The Izzet story. <laughs> these names, the names of all of these are great, but keeping track of them all is less so. It's not clear whether or not this is before or after the Izzet story, though. Oh, it's, it's after. Yeah, it's definitely after. The character from the Is It Story appears within this huge think tank exhibition hall with the they have the gathering tank and the tool thing that creates the weird energy signature that 
she found down in the sewers. So this is the person after that event who has used this technology and now kind of understands kind of what she was dealing with. Oh, see, because it goes awry, I assumed that maybe because it's situated on the river and they mention that it that stuff flows into the sewer and the Golgari have claim to it because of that, that this might be how it ended up getting knocked like into the river and ended up in the sewer to do that in the first place. I hadn't looked at it that way, but I, I kind of envisioned this person as the person, the, the, the main person of that story actually playing around with it after she's figured out what it was not but i guess that's that's another way to look at it i hadn't considered that i don't think it really matters much either way yeah but yeah related to like our timeline discussion this story connects to that story but that story only connects to this story so the is it story and the azorius story are kind of in this binary where we can place them in a timeline with each other but not with anything else so ultimately i think the timeline project is not going to go anywhere. We're missing one more connection that doesn't exist for us to really tie all 10 stories together. And I think that's fine. I don't think these need to be like tightly plotted nope. necessarily on a timeline. But it's cool that all of these what would otherwise be side stories have this interconnectedness that make them feel like a larger world. While they're looking at this demonstration, his bag gets snatched, and that includes these reference texts that Tagan gave him. In chasing down the mugger, he stumbles into Azorius territory. The mugger, I should mention, was also Vidalkin. He gets stopped by an Azorius patrol, and the patrol tells him, We've got reports of a mugger who's been wreaking havoc around here, he says. And then finally, I think we're going to get somewhere, but then he says, you fit the description. Tall, blue, bald. That's racist! Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one, this was definitely on the nose, but I think it was very appropriate because of the kind of overbearing authority of the Azorius. And also because Reza then gets hung up because Reza's ID was in his bag that got stolen. And Reza, that law that they had just had passed, that law required indefinite detention for anyone who can't supply their ID to an Azorius patrol when asked. So he just screwed himself with his own law, not realizing there could possibly be a situation where that would be an asinine law. Stick it to the man or yourself, ha! Well, in this story, he is the man. He mentions at the beginning that he hadn't left New Prov in eight years, just theorizing about laws and writing them and researching. He ends up running away and is like counting off the laws he's breaking in his head. And he runs into Henrik with a fixed up thopter that he very quickly surmises Henrik was referring to himself when he said a crazy inventor was shooting down thopters out of the sky. <laughs> but thankfully, Henrik did, because they were able to escape with Janin. Besides all this other craziness that's going on, the electrical rift experiment has created a giant, dangerous electrical elemental that's destroying the whole think tank and killing a whole bunch of people who live there. The tangle of the law surrounding this think tank is something that, on the fly, Reza solves. 
and ends up making Henrik grand arbiter of the think tank and makes it its own independent municipality, essentially. Then they are able to create a law to allow Azorius help in. The quote there for it is, I sit bolt upright and start conjuring. I realize I do have something all those other law mages didn't. I've seen the think tank. I've talked to its residents. So the reason Reza is able to solve this quandary when no one else has is because Reza has actually bothered to learn about what he's trying to make laws about, which is a very interesting point and very applicable to the real world as well. Actually having empathy for the people you're making laws to govern. What a concept. So when Reza finally returns, having solved this think tank quandary, he has this moment with Tagan where Tagan's like, I don't think I can be your mentor anymore. And Reza's like, why? Of course, the reader knows why is because Tagan says, well, I think it's time that you mentor somebody else. You know, you don't need my help anymore. And so Tagan tells Reza, you are the one who finally solved this problem and it's going to be a hard sell and it's going to take you months, but it's going to be worthwhile to finally negotiate all of this. And that's the kind of thing he should be pushing forward from then on. So this was an interesting story. Obviously, there was the cop saying Reza was existing while Vidalkin within a police officer's presence when there was a crime going on around. So racial profiling. Yeah, just a little bit. And then there was also the issue of, you know, pointing out that the Azorius, for all their attempts at good, don't have a whole lot of empathy for the people they're trying to govern and end up creating a lot of problems because of it, because they value making the laws more than making the laws serve the people, which I also thought was a very interesting point because there's so many there's so many laws, let's say, that are well-meaning but end up having a very negative impact on the population they're supposed to be helping or on a another population altogether. <laughs> Voter ID laws. Uh, what? Did you get that because of the whole ID law issue that came up in this? I really liked this story. It felt a little shorter than some of the other ones. I don't know if it actually was, but it was definitely a lot of fun. And I'm real quick going to bring up the other 10 stories because we should talk about them overall as a group. So we've had 10 stories from Nikki Drayden so far. And I think almost all of them, if not all of them, my life experiences meant I didn't even notice some of the social issues brought up in these. And that's okay. If someone would explain those to me, I'd always appreciate it. But for the most part, I think these did a really good job of leveraging this fantasy kind of dystopian city plane to talk about real world issues. Yeah. One of the themes that came up in our Ravnica episodes when we were prepping everybody for the plane is that Ravnica is actually a really crappy place to live. And it's like really awful for its citizens and it's not safe. And there's so much crime and so much corruption everywhere. It's kind of why I've never been a super huge fan of Ravnica. Like, I, I, I get the story is, some of the story is great, but it really is a, a really weird dystopian society. As long as you're in a guild and you're not disrupting another guild's business, like, murder is 
pretty much free game. It's it's a really weird situation, but Nikki does a great job in making it a, a more livable plane in certain aspects, but it may, it she really does shine a light on a lot of the other problems that arise with how the guilds operate under the guild pact and even without it. So Ravnica's a weird place. Yeah, all the issues she brings into what is essentially urban fantasy is really highlighting the urban part through the lens of fantasy. And it grounds all these stories, especially because we're not dealing with planeswalkers in this, you know, big epic fantasy plotline. We're dealing with everyday people in their everyday lives. She really makes Ravnica feel lived in, which I really appreciated and I think was, for me, the biggest success of these 10 stories. Absolutely. 100%. These are probably the first stories about Ravnica that aren't about the bigger world-ending social ills, but the little social ills that humanize the place. The original novels, to a certain extent, gave a little bit of it, but it was more focused around the Boros and the Boros interactions with other citizens. But Nikki's definitely does give the other guilds more of a shot and gives you a greater understanding of how those guilds operate from the ordinary layperson as opposed to a high-powered planeswalker who's just visiting the plane. But I, I can definitely see where you're coming from. Yeah, what I mean is, you know, like, in the original Ravnica, we saw, oh, it's bad if you're, Ravnica's a bad place to live if you're poor and not a member of one of the guilds. But, you know, that's like, that's kind of the real surface level world building. It's very different when you're saying, or when you tell the story about a, say, the Boros Legionary who hits a glass ceiling and is kind of relegated out into the middle of nowhere, or the Gruul tattoo artist who can't do anything but this one thing. I think she did an amazing job of giving it what felt like very real social problems. Because every fantasy world has, you know, poor urchins and frequently has racial issues. But the way Nikki wrote these stories made them feel much more real than, say, and thank God Ashley's not here because she'd murder me, than Dragon Age Inquisition's elf racism. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I really liked Nikki's stories. I would have to say, what was my favorite? I think my favorite will have to stay as Clans and Legions. I think that was my favorite when we talked about the Guilds of Ravnica stories, and it's still my favorite. What about you two? I think ultimately the Golgari one was probably my favorite I really appreciated getting a story from the Crawl point of view. I really like that the Crawl have been played up more since they got a single card in, I think it was in Dragon's Maze. So they were kind of an afterthought in Ravnica world building, but with Mazarak and now with this whole block, they're like a legit thing. And I think that story did a really good job with its themes and creating a lot of dissonance between the success and failures of respective characters. The crawl that we follow through the story, yes, kind of saves Vraska, but also himself dies. And the Lich Lord and the Elf who got the apprenticeship are, like, fine at the end. It's kind of a hollow victory, but it was, like, just enough 
to end the narrative of that story, which I appreciated. And feels very Golgari. It's like everything's always working in cycles and you don't always get everything all at once. But, you know, when you're undead, you have more time and you can fix things later and life and unlife go on. If you haven't listened to it, Michelle from the Lorgoifs did an interview with Nikki where they talk a lot about this specific story. So I would definitely check that out if you're listening to this and want to hear more about it. I would definitely want to see Nikki back to write more stories. Yes. To maybe even write some mainline magic stories. I was never the biggest fan of the Uncharted Realms era's side stories. Some of them I like. A lot of them I felt were misses. I think every single one of Nikki's stories was a worthwhile read, whether or not they ever have anything to do with the quote-unquote main plot, with the Gatewatch and everything going on. I can't say that about 10, (laughs) necessarily 10 random Uncharted Realm stories that don't have anything to do with a mainline plot. Agree completely. I really hope that they lean on her a little bit more if they ever come back to Ravnica, and maybe even if they do another plane. I was really impressed with her work on this plane and making it feel like somewhere you could actually visit and see some of these people, even if you aren't. You could live among these people even if you aren't a planeswalker. I think my favorite was The Illusions of Child's Play, which is the Rakdos one, mainly because I had my own preconceptions about how the Rakdos worked, even though... It's not too far off still. She made it feel like it's not purely about causing pain to somebody while entertaining others. I mean, this is something that can be said for all the stories. I really appreciate how she made all these people feel like people I could relate to. That one specifically gave me an insight that I hadn't really considered on Matt Gill specifically. So I guess that was my favorite. But like I said, all of her stories... I really appreciate how she made this playing field a lot more lived in than even the novels way back when did. And, you know, it's really impressive. What I really appreciate as a testament to how good all these stories were is that none of the three of us picked our favorite guild's story as our favorite story of the group. Yeah, absolutely. 100% is... I liked the Izzet story, she did also did a very good job of making all of the guilds have positive and negative characteristics. Whereas, you know, like like Brian said, the Rakdos, you, you didn't usually think of them in a positive light at any point until those stories. I think a big part of that is the bringing in outside writers. Nikki gets to bring her views from outside the company and from someone who has not worked on magic before and learn a lot about magic and get to write magic stories, but from the point of view of someone who isn't so bogged down in what Rakdos has meant historically. To use, I think, the best example of this success is the Sphinx in this week's Azoria story <laughs> that does all these really cat-like things that are really cute and, and endearing. That's not someone who has an experience with magic sphinxes is probably going to do. They're probably going to make an Azoria Sphinx a lot more stoic and reserved and kind of stuffy. But Nikki says, no, they're going to flop over a divider like the way cats get floppy and liquid. (laughs) And they're going to paw stuff off a desk like the way cats do. (laughs) 
That was hilarious. That's just the perspective Nikki brought to these stories, and every one of these was excellent, and I'm so happy we got them. Yeah, so what I'll say is the vision for Magic Story going forward, way back in my first interview with Nick Kelman from the franchise team, was that that was the kind of thing they were trying to bring to Magic with these outside authors. And I hope Nikki has really kind of given a good example for how that can really work well. So let's move on to final thoughts. Pokemon Sword and Pokemon Shield, right? Am I right? Yeah. All right. Honestly, I can't decide between them. I do like Scorbunny a lot. But Grookey has really grown on me, and I'm really hoping Grookey can be my King Kong. GK! <laughs> Grookey Kong! The, the only Pokemon I use in my teams are ones that strongly resemble Kaiju. Grass Monkey! The Funky Monkey! Grass Monkey Monkey! Lorelei? Team Sobble all the way. Sobble is very cute too. They're all so good this time around. Usually I can immediately say, like Litten, I was Team Litten from the go. This one, I'm very hard to narrow down. So my real final thought, though, is we had the first Mythic Championship of the year in Cleveland this past week, and it was won by Autumn Burchett on the Mono Blue Tempo deck, which is an awesome deck. But more importantly, Autumn is a non-binary trans person who just won the biggest damn tournament in Magic right now. And they are the first non-male who has won the Pro Tour slash Mythic Championship. And that is phenomenal. And I'm so happy for them. And I'm so happy for the Trans Magic community, which I am a part of. When the last Terramander got the last bit of damage in in Game 5 in the finals, I think I cried for like 40 minutes, which is like twice as long as I cry when I'm depressed. So in perspective that's how impressive that cry was it means a lot to me to see autumn win and to see so much support for them in the magic community representation matters and i'm just very happy it's been a very good week for magic and terramander says trans rights brian i need to know if a johnny was a pokemon what type would he be and also does he use the litter box jay answer the question i'm i'm not answering that Boo. So my favorite Pokemon is Persian. And if a Johnny was a Pokemon, he's basically a very large Meowth. <laughs> As to his litter box comment, again, I respected Johnny's privacy too much to make sport of it. <laughs> Fair. Fair enough. <laughs> and as a final, final thought, I wanted to mention that there is going to be a magic storytelling panel at Emerald City Comic Con on Sunday, March 17th from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. And that panel is going to include editors from Wizards of the Coast, Delray Books, and Greg Wiseman, the author of the upcoming Ravnica novel. One of those editors is me. I will be there as a member of this panel talking about my work with the franchise team. And you will get to learn all about what's coming up next in Magic Story. So you might have heard something about our live listeners in this episode. 
That is a cool special reward you can get by supporting us over on patreon.com slash thevorthoscast. Everyone who supports us gets access to our Discord server community, where Vorthoses around the world are having a good time and freaking out about the Sarakard. But we have a bunch of other tiers as well, one of which you can get a monthly episode called Pull from the Deep, where we discuss a brief topic in a short condensed episode that we really don't have time for in a regular podcast. And our highest tier gets you these live listens. We record Thursday nights at 7.30 Eastern Time. So if you're in our Discord server and part of the live listen tier, you can hop on, listen to our episodes live, which lets you hear them a couple days earlier before we release them, and also gets you access to some behind-the-scenes stuff and, like, the bad jokes that don't make final episodes. There were a couple this week. (laughs) You won't get to hear them unless you're our live listener. Or Arjun appearances before the cast or during. Arjun is here almost every week. If you like children and you like Jay, Jay's (laughs) child gets to be here. And even if you don't like Jay, Arjun is, like, great. (laughs) (laughs) If you like Jay. (laughs) I know. Liking Jay is asking a lot of you listeners. It is. It's true. Anyway, thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.